Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all, to feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Hello, I'm Dorian Linsky of The Guardian, among other places. Welcome to the first edition of Romaniacs, a podcast for everyone who won't just roll over, give up and get over Brexit. And I'm Ian Dunt. I'm the editor of politics.co.uk and the author of Brexit, What the Hell Happens Now? Um, And each week we're going to be looking at the latest developments as Brexit unfolds and we pursue our very exciting future, establishing a trade deal with New Zealand. We'll see what Brexit is doing to Britain and to our collective minds. We'll look for a path through the chaos and uncertainty it's unleashed. And in coming weeks we'll be talking to writers, commentators, politicians, economists and all kinds of experts because we've definitely not had enough of experts. (laughs) And we'll even try to help you talk Brexit with your hardcore lever relatives. Together we can try to own the Ramoning and maybe cheer each other up a bit. And also we have uh, Peter Collins here who is a former business editor of The Economist and our resident Tory Remainer. That's right. I just want to make it really clear that I think Theresa May and the Conservatives are the worst bunch of politicians in Britain, <laughs> except for all the rest. It's, you know, it's what Churchill said about democracy. It's, it's the worst system apart from the way you... A, a ringing uh, endorsement for ex- the pamphlets. Well, ex- exactly. There's, I don't believe in ringing endorsements, do you? <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> OK, one of the worst things about Brexit, and there are plenty to choose from, is the suppression of debate. If you dare to criticise or raise doubts, then you're a saboteur, an enemy of the people who wants Britain to fail. We want Romaniacs to be a space where we can talk candidly about what's happened and what might happen next. Ian, what do you make of the general state of the debate at the moment? Uh, Well, terribly bad. So, um, I mean, it feels, A, like the debate has almost is now not taking place and is not only not taking place, but is not taking place for almost a year now. So, you know, the vote happened you know, almost 12 months ago. Stagger- I was actually reading a piece of mine from a couple of weeks afterwards to try and drub up on some immigration stats before a debate. And looking at it, I was thinking, I was about, I was sort of writing, you know, any time now the talks will start and then we'll have a degree of realism in the debate. I would never have guessed that a year from now we would still not be having the conversation. And insofar as anyone tries to have it, they are shouted down as some kind of traitor or sort of treasonous, you know, saboteur. So, no, it seems like a rather disastrous place to be. And that's partly why we're in this room of trying to give people some sense that you haven't just lost your sanity and the debate has not gone completely mad in this country, that there's still some reason out there. Maybe for Remainers, this is actually a, a, a wise tactic that, you know, we will be shouted down, um, et cetera, et cetera, at the moment when there's nothing actually happening. And maybe it is, uh, I'd like to suggest to everybody, a good tactic to wait until the material hits the fan mm. uh, when the talks start and then very quickly run into trouble and then... Um, issue our brilliant commentary because any time before that we will be it, it's, it makes it easier to make the charge stick that we're frustrating the will of the people or talking Britain down or, or whatever. It's such a good point and there's always that sort of that, that tension among Remainers of you know the, which is typified by the would you hold a second referendum thing. Mm. The, thing is, the truth is the only way there'd ever be a second referendum is if there was public demand so it would be absurd to rule it out and yet it becomes this sort of symbolic attack that stops you from doing anything. The debate as you say once we enter into talks becomes on substance rather than this sort of swirling hysteria that we have and that's where we have a voice. Well, the, I mean, so much of it seems to have just been sort of like vibes based rather than fact based yeah. is that there was this general just kind of like feeling. And so 
it's being presented as rock solid when it comes to criticising it, that you cannot thwart the will of the people. And you go, okay, what, what is the will of the people? How might that manifest itself? What are the obstacles we have to get over? And there are no real answers. It's just like, shut up! Stop mm. talking down the will of the people. I find it an intellectually and emotionally maddening place to be because it, it, it's not... I mean, the election is maddening in itself, and we'll get to that. But you sort of know a bit more what the stakes are, who's promising what. Whereas here, there's just a general vague promise of it'll be all right. Yeah. Just trust us. We have entered into a period without any political content in which politics has done... I mean, you know, if, if anyone thought that Tony Blair was superficial, he looks like the paragon of political content at the moment. We forget now that for months, Theresa May just said Brexit means Brexit. That was literally her policy for months on end. Jeremy Corbyn... I mean, trying to even work out what on earth the, the policy is, is is maddening. I mean, you know, the way that Keir Starmer would put out that the advanced bits of speeches would have one little nugget which needed to be decoded, you know, by people, you know, like me who are emotionally broken enough to spend hours trying to read what those codes were. And then like these little breadcrumbs you'd follow from there to the Today programme interview to the full speech. And when you got all of that together, you might try to figure out what policy he was alluding to. So like the biggest political decision of our lifetime. And both parties are sort of insisting on a hard line, but not really telling anyone what it is. And that is the most intensely frustrating thing. Because then when you're told to shut up, you're not even being told to shut up because you disagree with something. You're being told to shut up because your emotional stasis is in the wrong sort of place. And we'll, we'll talk more about the election later. I want us to uh, start with a quick look at this week's developments. What's in the Brexit headlines, Peter? Well, this um, thing that has been quite frustrating, I think, is for, for me and probably will be for you as well, this poll saying that apparently uh, two-thirds of the public are now in favour of Brexit. And that the trouble is that this comes from a YouGov poll, and YouGov, I think, have not done us all a great favour by misleadingly headlining the results of this poll on their own website as, listen to this, forget 52%, which is the uh, referendum result, the rise of the relievers mean that the pro-Brexit electorate is 68%. So, of course, all the papers seize on that and say, ah, two-thirds of the public, more than two-thirds of the public now favour Brexit. But actually, if you look at the figures, uh, 45% support Brexit, 45 it's less than the 52%. Then there's 23% of these relievers, which... uh, but from the description means me and possibly you, people who are against Brexit, people who voted to remain, but think that the government accept the reality that the government has to follow the will of the people. There's another 22% of hardliners who say, sod the will of the people, uh, let's just not have Brexit. Now, the point is, they, are not, they we, are not in favour of Brexit. We're in favour of, we're part of the reality-based community, basically, that we believe <laughs> that if you have a referendum in a country that is, believes in democracy, you have to follow the result. I suppose, you know, to give a small bit of um, positive coverage for Theresa May, she voted to remain, or so she tells us, and she is doing the same thing. She is faithfully carrying out, so she says, the will of the people, even though from what she's told us earlier, she doesn't really believe in it. Mm. That's the way it goes. Well, the idea that you would sort of pro-Brexit because you just want to make the best of a bad job, it's like if you've got a terrible illness and you need an operation, you're not pro-illness. It's just you kind of think, well, given the circumstances, let's have the operation uh, rather than die. And so it seems as if what I hate is that this whole, this fairly rational approach of, well, let's just try and make the best of it, is then kind of owned by the Leave camp. They go, well, you support Brexit. And if you go... Let's not make the best of it because it's a terrible idea. Then you are the saboteur. So it's like it very mm. much is. It, are you with us or against us? Whereas in fact, a lot of people are, are, are nervous and ambivalent. And the way that this this story was pitched sort of makes it seem like give up everyone. 
know, I'll be interested well. to watch the polls as the as the talks get started and progress, and as you know any problems emerge, it'll be a little bit. I suspect, like the Iraq War, there are far more people now who are against the Iraq War than there were exactly. at the time. You know, people quietly changing them because not not everybody was forced to wear a T-shirt saying "Stop the War" or mm. "Start the War." Um, it, there's lots of scope for the, those poll figures to change, and it'd be interesting to see where we are in, let's say, a year's time. I thought we were. St- I, I kind of feel the public's in the same place that it's always been, which is really have a quarter who are hard leave, a quarter who are hard remain, the rest of the 50% are somewhere in the middle and can be shifted either way. Mm. Now, at the moment, we've had this domestic debate. No light gets through. There's no sense of compromise. There's no sense of other people's interest. There's no sense of consequence. But once that starts to take over, then there's an argument where that middle 50% could be dragged over in various directions. I'm just saying, I mean, we've always known there was a split in Remain of people who wanted to fight the result and people who wanted to, you know, trigger Article 50 and say, well, there's a democratic requirement that we now go ahead and at least give it a shot. That does not mean that you can't take them apart on their conduct as they follow through on Article 50 in those negotiations. And that's, I think, where things will change slightly, or at least that's where I think Remainers should be focusing their energies. And uh, more news. Ian. Indeed, yes. We have the rather crucial news that Marine Le Pen has decided that she's no longer pro-Frexit. Actually, even saying the word Frexit makes me feel like a total, total fool. But who, nevertheless, who would be pro-Frexit? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. Word. As a sentence, it makes yeah. zero sense. So even the National Front are now seem to be t- turning away from this idea. We're seeing quite staggeringly high levels of support for the EU in Europe. Within reason. I mean, the EU has never been shown by opinion polls to be a particularly popular project in almost any country. And, and France is, is about as Eurosceptic as we are in a rather different way. I mean, it has more of a sort of anchor on the left, I think. Nevertheless, it seems a completely pivotal moment, obviously follows from her rather convincing defeat to Macron just a few weeks ago and seems to suggest that the continental tide is turning and that possibly Brexit has some sort of impact on that of actually making people go the other way. The question is whether, you know, you can run a far right campaign without sort of EU phobia. Obviously, Mm. you can. There's Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, all sorts of racism, all sorts of victims, uh, sexual minorities that you can pick up. So many exciting options. So many exciting options for for being a fascist, (laughs) as there always were. Uh, So, and you could, I suppose, you could have a, a sort of slightly, even you know as crazed as ever far-right proposition that says you know let's create a holy roman empire in europe of white christian people i suppose you could in a demented way see the eu as a good thing in if, if it were sort of in your mold of of, of mm. thinking so you can run uh, a sort of far-right campaign without being eu phobic it's just maybe people like marine le pen um uh, have and maybe even UKIP have seen people's Euroscepticism or scepticism about the institution of the EU as a way to pull, you know, pull a crowd basically and then start talking other nasty stuff that, it, it, uh, that it's not a necessary requirement but it helps. What do you think? Mm, absolutely. It also gives you a, a really good sort of blame an object upon which to heap all of this blame for. I mean, this is sort of one of the crucial things that's always happened with the EU, is it's operating above the nation state. And yet most people's press and politics is still fundamentally conducted at the level of the nation state. So when something goes wrong, you just go ahead and blame the EU. Half the times we're not to do with the EU and its domestic policy. Other times, it's not even EU. It's actually above the heads of the EU. And it's sort of international standards. You remember a while back, there was some nonsense press hysteria about 
the Union Jack on sausages. I mean, none of that, so they were getting, you know, you can imagine that the nonsense. Um, and none of that even came from the EU. That was all global standards, basically from the codex that they brought down. And it's just this wonderful object of blame in the same way I would suggest that Nicola Sturgeon uses Westminster of, you mm. know, it's a level above where you are politically. So everything bad is to do with that. Everything good is to do with you. And so it's always been very helpful for politicians, including Marine Le Pen. In a, in a way, that's, you know, obviously it's good for the politician, but it can actually be good for policy. Let me give you a weird example. I used to, at one point, I covered a local government when we had the Audit Commission, which is like a local government, wide, broader version of the Ofsted, the school inspectors. Mm. They would come in and say, this department isn't being run properly. Uh, money's being wasted on this and this service isn't being provided. And the councillors and the officials could say, oh, well, we know we wouldn't we don't want to make these changes, but the Audit Commission is telling us to do it. So the right thing would be done. And the guys from the Audit Commission used to sort of accept it was their job to be the whipping boys but they would deliver it's like, it's like hiring consultants in business to tell you the thing that you know that you have to do because it's not our fault the consultants have told us we have to <laughs> we have to close this department and expand that department it, uh, so it can be a positive thing um uh, it's not just a thing a sort of get out clause for policy and in a way the eu has performed that role another another good reason to keep the eu Right. Yeah, well, it's a sort of bloodletting device just to get rid of that toxin from the body. You, you also get all the different ways that countries implement policy. I mean, Britain has always implemented EU rules in this unnecessarily thorough and very rule goes sort of way. So, I mean, you take there was once a directive. I mean, to go like to briefly explain the difference. This is this is the only kind of context and place where I get to talk about this level of geekery. So I'm just going to go ahead and do <laughs> yeah, it. Basically, so like you've got regulations and you've got directives coming from you. Regulations are sort of full fat EU law goes directly onto the statute book. It concerns things that the EU has total control control over directives are basically sort of orders you need to do this it's up to you how you do it you can do it through statutory instruments you might put it into legislation or whatever a few years back they put out something and saying you need to bring online video into some kind of regulatory function which most places most countries they just put another line in whatever piece of legislation they had for their ofcom their version of the, the regulator and did it. We went completely bananas and set up something called Atvod, which is a whole new half-private regulator <laughs> so for online TV. wonderful new words we have now. Atvod, yeah, I know. I just, I just thought I'd just try to turn off as many listeners as possible <laughs> in a five-minute period. The, this story goes somewhere interesting because this organization they set up, it's originally, he starts throwing, you know, they throw their net wide trying to bring in places like the sun and all that. When they fail, he suddenly goes completely mad for dominatrix porn. And this watchdog just went around trying to blame, trying to ban dominatrix porn all over the place, sending out these highly aggressive letters to people. Basically went completely off the reservation until it was finally closed down a few years ago. People were saying, well, we've gone mad. It's another example. Britain just has a very strange relationship with Europe. We were always chuntering away and complaining. But actually, when it came to implementing stuff that came from Europe, we went head overboard and often set up these organisations that just, you know, went completely off the reservation. And from dominatrix porn to sport, Peter. <laughs> well, <laughs> indeed, yes. I mean... I have to confess here that my knowledge of football could really fit on a very small postage stamp, but I was impressed by this analysis uh, comparing the position of Premier League football clubs to the leave vote in the referendum in the local authority area in which the football club is based. It's a remarkable a correlation that any statistician I think would be proud of, which is that basically if you're towards the top of the premiership, your local people voted remain. The relegation zone is very much Brexit territory. Just really <laughs> a, great, a great chart. Basically. <laughs> and Ian? Yeah, indeed. So our last piece of news is this actually really is getting into the to the geekery now. So um, we've got the negotiating directors out from the EU and those have now been finalised. 
this is a rather crucial moment in the whole thing. But of course, nobody noticed because we're all in an election campaign, which you know nobody called for or has any real democratic or functional requirement. But nevertheless, the EU's position it hasn't changed much. In fact, you know, if you look at the stuff that David Allen Green, he's been doing great stuff at the FT, sort of showing how its position hasn't really changed much since June 23rd, really. I mean, it's basically stayed where it was. Um, it is a pretty tough series of conditions. Um, I mean, the, the, of the things that are worth mentioning is the amount of power they have to tell you when the first phase of negotiation is over. So first phase is on budget and EU citizens in the UK, UK citizens in the EU. We don't even get to talk about transitional arrangements until they have decided that enough progress has been made on that. We don't know the basis upon which they decide that progress. We don't even really know who makes the call. It, it seems like it's Barnier himself. That puts us in a rather difficult position because ultimately, and remember, we don't have the last six months of the negotiation. So really, from autumn 2018, that's all votes. So there's no more chatting going on there. The longer those budget and new citizens talks go on, the closer we get to the cliff edge without having been able to discuss transitional arrangements, which would save us from the kind of regulatory black holes, which would see a sort of real chaos hitting our economy. That is quite troubling to me, and it's more troubling now because I've just spent the last week trying to get my head around the EU citizens question, which is so much more complex than I ever realised. I was sort of in the camp and just thinking, oh, we'll just guarantee and they guarantee back. If you start looking at pensions and you start looking at healthcare, you start looking about family rights to visit, it suddenly becomes hellishly complicated and very, very tough to do. So that alone, let alone the much more you know, the difficult issue of the budget, could hold stuff up for a very long time. And again, it just sort of shows what an advantageous position the EU is, as opposed to us in these negotiations. And there's this point, uh, I think it was in your paper, Dorian, the, 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 the leak of the plans for the sort of timetable, uh, the sort of four-week timetable. That in the first week, everybody prepares their documents. The second week, they swap documents like discovery in mm. a legal case and discuss them. And the third week, it's all wrapped up in week's talks. And then they all go back to their European parliaments and national parliaments and uh, national governments and say, there you go, we've reached an agreement. So we've got in the middle of that about a week of talks to settle in each case incredibly difficult things that normally take years at a at, at an EU level to resolve it just looks it just says to me this isn't going to happen I mean we're just going to we're just going to have breakdowns each time it seems to me well um obviously Theresa May when she when she called this election one of her big pitches is like give me the strongest possible hand to negotiate with um but it now it was sort of pitched as a sort of Brexit election and that seems to have faded out and at times I feel like it's a Seinfeld election where it's an election about nothing I don't really know <laughs> what it's like do you like Theresa May or do you like Jeremy Corbyn it seems to be you know on, on all the kind of levels that that actually matter it doesn't seem to be to be functioning and if you think that trying to stall Brexit is the biggest issue there's almost no one to vote for except a, a, a protest vote with the Lib Dems who at the moment are finding it hard to crack double figures and and this theory that all these hardcore Remainers were going to kind of bring the, the, the Lib Dems roaring back. Uh, seems to have fizzled quite badly. Mm. Well, here's my alternative theory, which you'll probably all disagree with, but we, we know we, we can we can agree to differ. Is that if you look at the the, the, the previous the Parliament just ended, um, according to one survey, I think by the BBC, almost half of then Conservative MPs said they were going to vote Remain. Uh, uh, I think at the moment nobody's really talking about it. Everybody's saying, well, we've got to follow the will of the people. Um, so my hope, perhaps a mad fantasy, is that if we do give uh, a big majority to Theresa May come the election, that will include a lot of um, silent, um, uh, covert uh, remainers, or at least people who want to make 
the best of, of, of a bad job and have a softer Brexit. Therefore, I'm hoping, um, I may be mad, but then uh, I'm still hoping that come the that, that difficult moment when we're getting towards the end of the talks and everyone's realising we're going to have to make some concessions on each side, otherwise, nothing, otherwise it will be a disaster, then Theresa May has to make some concessions on her side. There will be cries of sellout, especially from the uh, Brexity end of the tabloids, and hopefully having some silent Remainers or um, you know, relatively logical people on board uh, as part of the Conservative majority, it'll be possible to ride out that storm. It'll still be a storm, but it seems to me it might be possible to ride it out. What do you think? I, I don't know. I mean, the thing is that she, she doesn't even really talk to her cabinet. She doesn't really talk to anyone outside of her small, tiny Praetorian garden, sort of Downing Street. So I'll just say, you know, you look at someone like Dominic Grieve, okay, he's clearly deeply uncomfortable, he was almost laughing every time a Brexiter speaks at how little they seem to understand the complexity. And he's obviously following that strategy. He never really criticises her in public, keeps on saying she's doing exactly the right thing at each moment, which seems to me to be a pretty obvious attempt to just stay inside the tent so that you can control things then. I don't know how much, I don't even know how much she listens to David Davis let alone how much she's listening to Dominic Grieve. We're all, this is part of the contentless politics thing, that she is a blank sheet of paper and you can project whatever you want. And I almost feel like, you know, it's sort of like optimistic people who are on the remains. I go, I think it's so that she can deliver a soft Brexit. And, you know, people were quite negative. They go, I think it's just so she can do whatever UKIP tells them to. And it, personally, it depends on whatever mood I'm in in the day is which way I think she might go. But I think there's very little basis upon which for us to think that. And that's almost the weird tyrannical sort of genius that she has of just total absence. So all we have is our own projections. Wasn't it Nixon who came up with this idea that you've got to appear to be a bit mad and a bit uh, erratic and predict Obviously, Trump is doing this in huge quantities at the moment. <laughs> he's he's maybe maybe gone too far it. with yeah, this well, cunning we, trick. I think we can agree on that. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, that, that the idea that, you know, you've got to keep everybody... There is, a, you know, mm. there's, there's t- she, she's been... I mean, Theresa May has been saying this right at the beginning. I'm not giving away my negotiating position. I'm going to keep it close to my chest. And she's doing it even with her own cabinet um, uh, you know, to try and hold it back and to keep the other side guessing. Uh, this may or may not be a good idea, but it seems to me a plausible candidate for what she's actually up to. And maybe you've got this thing on, whereas on the Labour side, a lot of the parliamentary Labour Party, uh, which opposes Corbyn, is keeping quiet and thinking there's nothing in it for us being anti-Corbyn publicly. Now we'll just wait until after mm. the election and then try and make a move. Maybe that's true of the, the Dominic Greaves of the, on the Conservative side, that you know it's not in our interest to be attacking the government or our leader publicly now. We just wait and see if things move in our direction. Yeah. Who knows? They, they don't know. We don't know. Now, a lot of um, the talk among, uh, you know, sort of Labour voting Remainers was was massive disappointment. Wasn't sure they could bring themselves to vote for Labour under Corbyn. Um, now, were they in some ways, it looks like an impossible situation that the majority, a strong majority of Labour voters chose Remain and yet a strong majority of Labour constituencies went for leave. Mm. And it seemed like whoever, whichever way you go, you disappoint somebody. Their cunning plan seems to be to go a little bit in both directions, thus sort of disappointing everybody. Was there another way? Yeah, I think there, there was another way. I don't even know if that's their plan. I mean, to me, that just looks like a complete abs. It's like I a say, vacuum. I say plan, like air quotes plan. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, and maybe some people make a compelling case of saying, you know, by having no position, you can at least adapt to the circumstances as you go through the next couple of years. I mean, it's, des- you know, it's, it's a desperate thing, but I think, fa- fair enough, at least there's an attempt there. I, I tend to think that he is just completely absent, intellectually absent. When you talk to Labour guys about the meetings, the Brexit meetings they have fairly regularly that he chairs, he's just not even really there. He's not really interested. People are arguing around him over it, you know, in an almost existential manner, and he just seems completely disconnected from the whole thing. 
It's very hard to see how any of this sort of works out. But there was another way, I think, which is just to say, yeah, we will deliver Brexit in the public trust, which is to say you can't trust the Tories with this stuff. Mm. At the moment, we're not prepared to see a single British family lose a single penny of their money in order to see what is ultimately a Tory project go through. We understand what are the people. We trigger Article 50. I mean, I don't think there was any way they could have really opposed triggering Article 50. I think that would have been madness. And, that, you know, we'll see it through and we'll make sure that people don't lose a penny. Instead, what we got was, you know, the most complex Jeremy Corbyn's ever been is he once mentioned tariffs, you know, which, which is about like a tenth of the issue that really needs to be addressed in any serious way. He just, they're just completely off to the reservation. But I don't believe it's so hard to make the case. Even the Starmer argument, which is basically we'll try and reform freedom of movement so that we can stay in the single market. And if we can't, we don't. I just don't think that's so hard to say. You know. Is part of it a... Um a sort of trust issue with Corbyn that it's pretty clear that he was a Eurosceptic, you know, who very reluctantly came round to remain and and did not campaign as he could have. Mm. Um, now, I'm not saying that the, the Labour would be singing and dancing, you know, if, if Owen Smith was in charge now, but for example, he was very strongly pro-EU. So if you had a Labour Party that was led by a very sort of strong Remain, would there be more, you know, would Remains have more sort of faith in Labour? How much of it is... Is not to do say like Keir Starmer or various other members, but it's the idea that Corbyn just just isn't his heart's not in it. I, I don't. I, I think you'd be you'd be crazy as a Remainer to have any faith in in Labour right now. But the thing is, even if it was um, another a very pro EU leader, this election is being held right now for a specific reason, which is to do it now before the reality of Brexit takes hold. Mm. The reality is already starting to dig into people's pockets. I think we're going to talk a little bit later about you know, how people's incomes are being affected by the fall in the pound. So that process is starting to take place. But over the next two years, it's going to take place in a much more aggressive way than it has up until now. And the whole point of having an election now is to do it in this period of hermetically sealed debate where that hasn't taken over. So I don't actually think a very pro-Remain Labour leader will be doing any better right now. I think mm. they'd be suffering in just the same way. Although, you know, it's a little bit apples for oranges because whoever they are, they'd be more competent and less shambolic than Corbyn. And you wouldn't be able to calculate how many more anti-Tory votes they'd get on the basis that you're not putting a lunatic into number 10. And could we spare a thought for uh, for sort of UKIP and what seems to have happened? Shall we not? They've, they've uh, <laughs> not like a nice thought, but just a thought. <laughs> Thoughts uh, don't have to be nice. This party that sort of they've they've won, you know, the, the 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 thing that they were set up to achieve, and now seem to be completely imploding. Now that seems to be because they have a kind of sketch show leader in Paul Nuttall, who always looks like somebody sort of impersonating Paul Nuttall for laughs. <laughs> So it's not Harry Enfield. I, no, I but that's what it was actually like, Harry Enfield. I, somebody doing I like all of the, of the pictures of him sort of staring meaningfully out to sea. And um, I mean, it's partly him and the fact that he seems to have, then have a Praetorian guard of, of lesser clowns around him. Is it just that they seem inept or is it that they've kind of, that their victory leaving the EU has kind of like destroyed the reason for all but the hardcore anti-immigration crew to sort of to, to vote for them. It seems to me it's both. I mean, they, they are a, a shower of... What was it? Cameron's phrase? Fruit cakes and loonies or loonies, whatever. Yeah. Um, and they've got the one thing that they were set up for. And if you look at it in one sense, UKIP was a sort of breakaway of the extreme Eurosceptic fringe of the Conservative Party. And their dream would have been at the time, A, to leave... Um, the EU ultimately, but in the meantime, to get the Conservative Party as a whole to accept the project of leaving the EU. Well, they've got that, uh, and they're a bunch of fruitcakes. Mm. <laughs> it's true. I mean, they're basically, look, UKIP is in power. It, 
you know, it left the body and is now spiritually in its home, which is in Downing Street. She is a UKIP prime minister. And so far as that's the way that she's behaved, it's possible, you know, she's going to start doing different things in future. But she she's and she, she has never been that different, you know, in the Home Office, the go home vans. She does that dreadful speech at Tory party conference, making up nonsense about cats and human rights law. Very, very anti-immigration speech. She is basically a UK prime minister. They've lost any reason to exist, except, and you see them doing this now, edging closer and closer towards far-right talk on proper Islamophobia. And that's why I think the next few days, now that we've had another terror attack in this country, are crucial to see what kind of rhetoric comes out of UK. You see Patrick O'Flynn, one of their spokespeople, starting to say, well, soon we're going to have to start moving beyond platitudes, by which I think he means, we'll do some proper Islamophobic rhetoric soon, guys. Don't worry, as soon as it's decent. It's, it's quite sweet they think these are platitudes. <laughs> So far, <laughs> yes, yes. that it's not great that kids are killed. Yes, that's a really rather revealing statement that that's what they think. Okay, time for a quick commercial message about another podcast you might like because there's more to life than politics. If you're enjoying Romaniacs, but you like music, film, books, and TV too, then you might like our partner podcast, Big Mouth. Every week, Big Mouth brings Britain's best music and entertainment journalists together to talk about the new releases, books, and movies that really matter. I'm on the show this week. We're talking about the 50th anniversary edition of the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper, the reboot of Twin Peaks, and the new album by St. Etienne. So tune in or download Big Mouth at audioboom.com slash channel slash Big Mouth, or find it in the podcast section of the iTunes Music Store. At the very least, it'll take your mind off Article 50. Moving on, James Carville's famous mantra from the Clinton campaign, it's the economy stupid, didn't seem to apply last June, certainly not in the way that Cameron's team hoped. But the economy won't be ignored for long. Last week, we got the news that inflation had risen to 2.7%, its highest level since September 2013, as the effect of the collapsed pound, which experienced a 20% devaluation right after the referendum, started to feed into the economy. GDP growth shrank to 0.3% in March. Luckily, we have Peter Collins, who's a, a numbers man, to explain it to us. Peter, is this the Brexit crash that George Osborne warned us about? I'm sorry if this disappoints, but I don't think so. This is where I think we as Romaniacs have to be have to tread carefully um, that the economy has been strong, mm. actually, since the referendum. Um, the Remain side, I think, made a huge mistake in uh, predicting uh, instant Armageddon the minute the, the referendum was over. Obviously, that wasn't going to happen, didn't happen. Um, We've had a fall in the pound, 20%, as you say, but it's actually recovered since. It's now only about 11% down since against the dollar and the euro since the referendum. And you've got this thing at the moment of you, you get quarterly GDP figures uh, come out a month or so after the quarter, and then they get changed, they get revised and so on. And you get inflation figures and uh, sort of in a, every month, and you get the, the state of the pound every 10 minutes. You can you can look at it. So they all, they all get out of sync. So we have to be careful um, not to be... Uh, sitting there saying, well, let's look out for some terrible news so we can say we told you so. Mm. I don't think that's a good idea because for, uh, for the biggest reason is I didn't vote Remain for the odd couple of points of GDP or the odd 0.5% of inflation. There are much bigger reasons why we, we the, the, Euro, the European project is a good idea. And secondly, there's this tactical thing of being seen to be talking Britain down, all that sort of nonsense. And also, if it turns out that for some completely different reason, the economy does OK, uh, let's, say we, let's say we have a global boom, even after the Brexit talks have collapsed and we're in complete confusion, a global boom combined with a small fall in the pound that makes our exports more competitive actually could make it look as if we're doing fine. If we as Remainers have uh, been predicting that it'll all lead to a terrible economy, we may well be proved wrong about that. It's just 
the truth is that it, you can't have the counterfactual. That's a problem. Well, it seemed like one of the, the big mistakes that the In campaign made, and George Osborne in particular, was this idea that on the one hand you went, you know, we're jumping off a cliff in the dark, there's going to be this great uncertainty, but by the way, we've got an exact sum for the amount that you're going to lose. And so people just didn't believe it. They said, well, is it, is, it an uns- is it uncertain, which is scary in itself, but then they actually undermine themselves by, by putting a number on it. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, it would have been much better to talk about uncertainty because that's a convincing fear. It's 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 the old cliche that it's the one thing that businesses and financial markets hate is uncertainty. Mm. And the danger is, for instance, in this case of financial services, that biz, uh, that banks and so on move away from Britain, start to move jobs away from Britain on the assumption that uh, we won't have any access to the European market, when in, in the end it might not be so bad and quite likely won't be so bad. So that it's, it's the uncertainty that does the damage. See, I'm, I'm a bit more cautious on this. I, and I, I think that your warning is the right one, which is, you know, at any moment, Remainers must make sure they never look like they want failure to take place or that they're not for the British national interest. That's catastrophic. And also just moral. I mean, if you've ended up in that place, that's not a good place for you to be in. The only moral level at which it's OK for which bad things happen to this country is if it would turn people against making a decision that would lead to further bad things, which would be worse than the ones currently being experienced. That much I can accept. But we cannot allow it to be seen that way and we shouldn't be thinking that way anyway. However, the debate over the last year, longer than that, like a year and a half now, has been an intensely emotional debate that is mostly about tribalism and identity and sort of chest thumping senses of nationalism. And it's been torn away from being anchored down in evidence and causation and reason in a way that really worries me of the many sort of things when you woke up the next morning after the result you know, thinking about a different country to the one that you knew. One of the things that most got me was the thing that this was a country that was ultimately quite stable and calm and evidence-based and didn't get overly emotional about things. That has been lost to me over the last year. And I think part of the way that we argue has to be to pointing out that there are consequences to the decisions that we make. One of the decisions we made, you know, was to vote to leave the EU. And one of the consequences of that was a fall in the value of our currency. And now that means that when people go to the supermarket, stuff costs more and that their weight, you know, we... Since the financial crash, people were having a situation where their wages weren't keeping up with inflation. Now, suddenly, we had two years of bright moments of that not taking place, and now we're back to where we were again because of our decision. Now, that has to be pointed out. And I think if anyone tries to say on the back of it, well, you're talking Britain down, that's the kind of thing that, you know, governments do to oppositions when they're talking that way. It's a classic political trigger. And you say, no, in order to show the problems that are happening to my country, in order to care about my country in that way, that is not talking Britain down. That is just, you know, part of having a rational patriotic debate about the future of your country. Well, actually, when they when they uh, one of the polls of Leave voters said that some of them were prepared for a short term economic cost. And even some of the people in the Mm. Leave campaign, because they felt in the long term, this was in the best interest. But what we have now through the the sort of pro Leave papers is that that no acknowledgement that it is anything less than brilliant is acceptable. And Mm. a grown up would just go, well, we believe this is the best thing. But there is going to be some, obviously, it's a massive change. There's a lot of uncertainty. There are going to be costs. And the debate being driven from the, the, many of the newspapers seems to be you can't mention any downside. Which you saw with Theresa May, remember? So, you know, yeah. she was doing a press conference. Guys stood up. Not a press conference. One of these dreadful things where they talk to a bunch of workers that look like they're being held there at gunpoint. And the guys sort of stood <laughs> up and sort of said, you know, my money buys less things. I'm basically poorer because of this vote. What are you going to be doing about it? And she sort of alluded to the idea that actually, you know, that was the responsibility of the vote, that, you know, that's why the currency had fallen. Next day, Sky News asked her the same question. 
And she just goes off on this extraordinary sort of mad, baffling speech about how, well, you know, there was fluctuations in currency before and after, as if it, none of it's completely connected. Mm. So I agree. You know, even if you didn't agree with the decision and the consequences of it, you would still at least hope that your political leaders who are dealing on a, just a semblance of reality to show that they at least are aware that this is why it is happening and therefore have some sort of tools with which to And then to it. see her being praised by, I can't remember which paper it was, but as, as being sort of tough talk, tough truths from <laughs> Theresa May. And this is literally <laughs> the thing that she is not doing. <laughs> I, think, I think what we should, we should be ready to do is uh, call out more often the, the Tinkerbell gambit you know, to say um, things are going wrong, not because of Brexit, but because you're talking Britain down. It's the Tinkerbell mm. gambit, because you remember in Peter Pan, Tinkerbell would die because you don't believe in her. <laughs> uh, you know, it, uh, that's what it is. I mean, it is that absurd mm. that some somehow uh, are pointing to the problems that Bre the Brexit vote is bringing, is, are themselves bringing down the economy, which is, obvi is obviously nonsense, but you just have to have s some sort of neat phrase that sums up why it's nonsense and then the, but the, the logical thing of that is why why are we doing this thing which is so fragile that if a few people you know that a few people can talk it down it's just like that that doesn't seem to me like a, a, a great path forward indeed mm. but then it's not really i mean the, you know the truth that explains so much and we're about to start talking about this but the truth that explains you know so much of the psychology around levers and the fragility of the way that they approach things is ultimately that they're terrified that this is going to go wrong and they're going to look terrible. And the reason that they're terrified of that is because any of them that are bothered to do any reading, the chances of that happening are actually quite considerable and more considerable by the manner in which we have pursued it, not just the actual objective itself. So that, so that tendency within them, I think, is what makes them lash out so hard when anyone questions the project in any way, because the only way to stop, keep on having that level of confidence in it working is to completely insulate yourself from criticism. And then, obviously, mm. after a short while, it starts to look like heresy. It's like telling a mate that maybe their relationship, maybe there's, you know, they're, they're not with the right person. Oh. And if they're feeling that themselves, then they'll lash out and go, no, 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 it's fine. It's a very dangerous game. Then, yeah, yeah, you're prodding their insecurities. <laughs> <laughs> And now a guide to how to prod insecurities. <laughs> uh, the very sort of subject of Brexit causes frostiness amongst relatives and friends like nothing else. It's the new don't talk about money or religion. Uh, if you suggest that leaving the EU might not be the best idea, you might get a tirade about sovereignty or just the classic shut up, you lost, get over it. Mm. I mean, the question is really why I leave voters so defensive about the whole thing. I sort of feel like we're entitled to be quite touchy. Because we lost. <laughs> the whole country has sort of turned against us. I don't quite understand, you know, all the time where, where they have the same... Well, we're in the age of the bad winner. Trump is much touchier than, than Clinton. About his own victory. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I must admit that I have not spoken about, about this to my Leave voting relatives because I don't quite trust myself. And I'm wondering, is, are, there, are there useful uh, strategies here? A good question. I mean, in my family, we sort of had... a. A brief, very brief conversation in which it, you know, I was surprised at the number of leavers, to be honest, uh, uh, in the family. And but it was clear that this is one that we better not talk about. Just sort of leaving, leaving it alone, basically, because it's something we couldn't agree on. I'm very English of you, indeed. Yes, but my my feeling is that generally. Uh, lobbying somebody to change their mind on something that they feel is part of their core philosophy doesn't work. You know, uh, sort of nagging people, throwing uh, even even good solid facts at people because what they'll be thinking is not, oh, that's a great fact, I'll change my mind. They'll be thinking, I bet there's an even better fact on my side, but I just don't have it at the moment. Yes. Uh, I think all you can do generally in life, whether it's you know your general political view or your view on a particular issue like Brexit, is to say, this is why I 
believe what I believe. This is this is why I think the European project is a good thing. And this is why I think we're taking an awful lot of risks. And I can't understand why we're taking these risks. It's not obvious to me that the benefits that are uh, touted for Brexit are actually there, etc, cetera, etc, cetera, without any element of trying to sort people feeling that they're being kind of harangued and buttonholed. I don't, I don't think that works. I came across a speech that, that Abraham Lincoln made in, in 1842, where he's basically saying, this is basically sort of human nature. He says, to you need to use kindly persuasion to expect people not to meet denunciation with denunciation and anathema with anathema is to expect a reversal of human nature. Hmm. And he says, he says that like, the harder you go in, he was talking about the temperance movement. And he was saying, like, the harder you judge people for drinking, the more likely they are to just to drink and tell you where to go. And I feel like this is the problem because it is such an emotional debate. Uh, among friends, I can talk about e-vote decisions and be very sort of angry and quite damning. But there is no way, as a member of the Metropolitan Liberal Elite, mm. that I can sort of go back to the suburbs and, and sort of weigh in like that. And yet I find the problem is that when you start trying to talk, OK, let's talk calmly about the facts, you're constantly facing a kind of wall of what the Daily Mail has said. And mm. so you can't even agree on... You can't even agree on the facts. So I wonder where there's even a, a firm ground on which to discuss this. Well, no, I mean, it goes off, you know, Brexit is not just Brexit, of course. It's an encapsulation of an awful lot of things. Now, I've got a, a friend who's married to a Latin American. You know, they've got a kid. And when this subject kept on coming up and his mum, I think this is at Christmas or Easter, one of those dreadful times you have to go back home. And, you know, when his, his mum started sort of going on about immigration, there was a point where he was just like, you know, that's, that's your grandchild that you're talking about right now. You know, and suddenly you're just like, well, this, this stuff is personal. And, I, and one of the things is, you know, the Leave side is obviously typified by this sort of sense of patriotism and all of that. But actually what I've found is many Remainers, especially liberal Remainers, are starting to find their own patriotism. Many of them were embarrassed to talk about stuff like patriotism before. But now when you have a sense of loss, it's like one of those things you only realise what you liked about a relationship when it's gone, you know. And you sort of have that. There's suddenly... And that's not just about being open and tolerant, all of those things, but I think that's really important. It's also about just basic things like a sense of irony. Like, I mean, I see no irony or real sense of humour in the Brexit. The, the, the way the debate is conducted seems so frenzied and cross and serious and just matter of fact and so tedious in the way that it is done. That there's none of that sort of self-deprecation around what it is to be British that I think people have cultivated as part of their sort of national identity and all of that. So th th this stuff goes deep, and I agree, it can't just be stats. And yet, at the end of it, that 50% of the population that can go either way, not, you're right, the people that have made up their own mind, and it's a core part of their political identity, not the core to the hardcore, remain or leave, but that core half in the middle, when it comes to political statements, those people do ultimately vote on their pockets. They vote on the basis of I'm richer or I'm poorer. And as soon as we lose track of that, we're in this swirling, dangerous mass of just instinct and emotion and identity. And that's not a good place to be in. It's not the kind of place that this country should be. So while it, we, there has to be a currency that's about the kind of country you want to live in, it has to be an emotional argument, it also has to be rooted down in evidence. And if it isn't, then we're just completely lost. Okay, we thought it would be nice to end each show with a, a reason to be cheerful. And uh, this week's uh, guarded Pollyanna is uh, Peter Collins. What have you got? Well, uh, it's a bit of a strange thing, really, but... Um... The best I can come up from the last week or so's news to be cheerful about is a group of economic advisers to the German government have once again put forward this idea that Britain could temporarily, and I'm putting that in air quotes, rejoin EFTA, the European Free Trade Association, which is like a kind of waiting room to the EU. We used to belong to it before we joined the EU or the, its predecessor uh, as, as, as an interim measure as and when the talks 
breakdown and everybody's shouting and nothing's being done. Um, what that would mean is we would stay in the single market, which obviously doesn't meet Theresa May's promise of uh, exiting it, uh, but we'd also we would be no longer subject to the full rulings of the European Court of Justice. Uh, we would make a contribution, but not as probably not anywhere near as big a contribution to the EU budget, and we would be able to strike trade deals, these wonderful trade deals with Finland and Canada that we're itching to, to do. Uh, it doesn't automatically mean accepting freedom of movement. There's a slight complication in that the only country that's in EFTA but not in the EEA, which is the next waiting room to the <laughs> European Union, it's all very complicated, is Switzerland. Switzerland is an EFTA member, but it's signed a bilateral treaty allowing freedom of movement. So, in, But in theory, Britain could be back in EFTA, not sign that treaty, or sign a treaty that sort of modifies the freedom of movement. And although it seems like it's, it's, it's a pointless to have this, here's my dream scenario, is that we accept this in a couple of years' time, we rejoin EFTA, we ne renegotiate our contributions and have limited um, freedom of movement as much as possible, obviously. Uh, and then we find that we get stuck there. Oh, what a shame. We've got most of the benefits of the EU. Um, uh, and, you know, there's, a, there's a, a vague promise one day that we will leave, you know, that Theresa May or whoever comes after her may have to keep promising that, oh, this is only temporary. And then we find that we get stuck there. And then maybe one day, you know, even brighter, more distant future, the a reformed EU makes is possible for Britain to rejoin. That's my dream scenario. Yeah, I have I have a similar one. I got to say, I I keep on looking around now. I see Macron, you know, pushing for for a consolidation in the eurozone, and I just I just think this is such a wasted historic moment where we could have gone into EFTA now. It would have bought us time in negotiation. It would have removed the European advantage. We could have lobbied for some change on freedom of movement within the EEA, an emergency break or restrictions, freedom of labor, something like that. And actually, Britain would have found itself in a, with a leadership role in the sort of second tier of European countries who didn't want to get sucked into the eurozone. We'd be sharing the single market with people that want a looser relationship. By virtue of its size, we would have wrestled control away, single market from the EU. And actually, that two-speed Europe, which everyone says they wanted, could have come by happy coincidence, by virtue of Brexit on the one hand and Macron on the other. We haven't taken that. It's tragic for me. And any sign, any sign, of, look at this is how much of a geek I am. The same, that anytime anyone even mentions after, I'm like, oh, very exciting. <laughs> like, I wonder yeah. if there might be a little route back into my little geeky club. So if there's hope, it lies with the Germans. At the <laughs> this is like what Liebers say, Remainers say. Yeah, <laughs> Germany will save us again. <laughs> Mate, don't don't put that in there. <laughs> so that's the end of our first show. Thanks for listening. I'm Dorian Linsky. Follow me on Twitter at Dorian Linsky. That's L Y N S K E Y. And I'm uh, Ian Dunt, and you can follow me on Twitter at, at Ian Dunt. I'm Peter Collins. You can't follow me on Twitter because I think social media are the very incarnation of <gasps> Satan. Right. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but if you write a letter in pen... <laughs> on parchment. On parchment. <laughs> it will be passed on between two or th two to three weeks. Yeah. You can follow our show if you like. We're on Twitter at RomaniacsCast. You can subscribe to the show in the podcast section of the iTunes Music Store and leave a review if you like. That helps us. Just search for Romaniacs. And you can listen again and download at audioboom slash channel slash Romaniacs. Feel free to share the show with anyone and everyone who's of a similar mind. It's like joining the French Resistance. We'll see you again next week. Courage, mes braves, et au revoir. Hasta la vista, até mais. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky and Ian Dunt with Peter Collins. 
The producers were me, Matt Hall, and Andrew Harrison. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production.